This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, enough to make a cat laugh, tracing the origins of Puss in Boots. I'm so excited for this one. Ever since yeah. we we started doing our fairy tale and focus series, um, Puss in Boots has been like. Obviously, I've I really wanted to talk about the other ones as well, but Puss in Boots has been on the radar, just kind of like bloop bloop in the instead <laughs> of in the background. I was just there, like, we'll get to you. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely have to. Even I mean, I think we say fairy tale, and most people think about princess marrying a handsome prince or mm-hmm. a down down at heel young woman marrying a handsome prince, etc. And there's so much more to fairy tales than than just this than than a pairing type situation. Even yeah. though that does happen, um, but this is very much about the trickster cat. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I actually really love about Puss in Boots is that it's a perfect example of of the fact that fairy tales were kind of universal in that there's this whole idea that fairy tales are gendered, you know. And obviously, you know, there's an element of the spinning tales, uh, mother, daughter and stuff like that. But it, it isn't, you know, fairy tales and folk tales weren't only for one sex or for one age group. Um, you know, that's that's a ridiculous notion. And Puss in Boots is a great example of basically being quite a universal tale, which which demonstrates it's not all about marriage and getting ready, you know, to, to sort of be wed or, or stuff like that. Um, for me, it really, really highlights that. Um, and it also perfectly highlights, as I've sort of said before, and as we'll get into, um, how... Uh, how stories are are interconnected with the people who, who obviously come up with them um, and how they can be so massively misinterpreted <laughs> or how people from other backgrounds can so entirely miss the point. <laughs> yes. Which obviously we'll get to. Yes. Um, now, Puss in Boots uh, is basically one of the, the tales on the Arne Thompson Folk Index, I think it's an AG5057 or something, which is basically something featuring an animal helper. Yeah. Um, but Puss in Boots is in a class of its own. It features generally a very clever cat, although the Filipino version features a clever monkey. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a clever jackal, there's a clever gazelle. So depending on where it's spread to in the world, it, it varies. Yeah, um, and it's something of an anomaly in fairy tale terms because there's no obvious moral. Yeah, um, the cat wins through cleverness, cunning, trickery, and deceit, and instead of being punished, is rewarded with success, having fooled royalty, and in some versions, murdered aristocracy. Yeah, <laughs> um, and again, we're gonna get into sort of the itty bitty parts of that, and w- you know also what we think of in terms of should fairy tales always have a moral yeah um and actually then how the, you know the relationship between fairy tales and folk tales and things like that and how in some respects puss in boots is actually more of a folk tale which has been which it, it, i think it's actually and we don't really have any way of proving this but i actually think that some of the the puss in boots the ones that have been recorded by Peralt and etc um, are actually closer to s- some of the original folk folklore 
uh, not folklore, some of the original folk tales from the region and haven't actually been changed that much because, because again, the point was missed. Um, So it perfectly highlights the fact that actually um, sometimes it's not about the moral. It's actually about a conversation with regards to the society around you so um we will get into a little bit of that as well but uh, yes um what is what's most striking about it is that you would really have to squint and really have to try in order to justify there being a moral and people have tried trust me people (laughs) have really tried but um it's tenacious at best (laughs) yeah okay so um before we get into this well-loved tale and the versions of it that are popular all over the world it's just in case you're tuning into this series of podcasts for the first time, a brief overview of what exactly we mean by fairy tales. Yes. So fairy tales, morality tales, fables, myths and legends all get jumbled together. Um, it's quite difficult to separate them entirely because these sorts of stories exist in almost every culture in the world. And what's a fairy tale in one place could be considered to be a legend in another. So. Yeah. Broadly, legends and epics contain a historical element and are considered to have happened in full or in part. Yes, even if it, people also say, well, we know that it didn't happen, um, it has a place in history. Yes. So the Iliad, um, even things like the Ulster cycle. Uh, well, uh, again, we're kind of getting a bit murky. But anyway, uh, then morality tales, fables and parables are concerned with delivering a message. Um, and this is usually religious or philosophical. Yes. Whereas fairy tales contain fancy creatures, so dwarves dwarves in the in the magical being type sense. Yeah, um, in, in, in the Slavic Nor- uh, Nordic yeah. sense. <laughs> Um, elves, gnomes, mermaids, dragons, etc. And they don't tend to contain more than superficial references to religion. Um, God is given no more place in a fairy tale than as yet another fantastical being, which has always interested me. Yeah. Um, and generally they don't give much more than superficial references to actual places, historical people or events either. Uh, yeah. They happened once upon a time or photo long ago. Yeah. And every now and again, you will have like exceptions to the rule um, like uh, Dick uh, Dick Whittington, is it? Yeah, Dick Whittington kind of crossed the bounds. Although, to be honest, I genuinely thought that was just a fairy tale until I started researching 14th century history and realised he, gen- he was a real person. Yeah, he was, he was yeah. <laughs> <It> became there. <laughs> yeah. Um, though, obviously, the fairy tale is, is very uh, inaccurate, I think, to the actual history. Um, <laughs> I'm but glad yes. you mentioned Dick Whittington since we're talking about clever cats, because yeah. that cat was really featured in that story. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But for the most part, yeah, they are kind of separate. Um, And with regards to sort of folk tales and fairy tales, we tend to think of fairy tales as being sort of the ones which have been written down, published, um, and folk tales being the ones which which a lot of fairy tales come from, which are part of the more oral tradition. Um, But again, there's actually no hard and fast rule because every time you lay out a rule, there will always be exceptions to it. Yeah, inevitably absolutely. um and madeline mentioned the term spinning tales earlier well i mean that also dips into it as well because mm-hmm. a lot of these stories particularly the folk tale variants that then became the written down fairy tales mm-hmm. were told orally um for entertainment between mothers and daughters grandmothers and granddaughters etc and between men as well mm-hmm. it's just that we actually know <laughs> the oral tradition continued through um 
through women to their children kind of thing. Yeah. Um, whereas we don't have the same sort of level of evidence, I guess, for between men. Yeah. Um, although, again, then you've got things like the Shanahi in in Irish tradition, which yeah. is storytelling, who can be male or female. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and who is onto themselves almost like a bit of a, a sort of a fairy tale figure, if that yes. makes sense. It turns out, tells a story, disappears again, disappears, mysteriously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tells a story which somehow links uh, with what's happening around. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, now, uh, some folklorists also, you might have heard the term Märchen. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong because it's German, uh, but it means wonder tale. So Hausmärchen um, was, I think, what the Grimm's referred to you know their book uh, like yeah. uh, wonder tales home for the home or something like that yeah uh, now while we're familiar with fairy tales as they've been preserved written down um and while this can make it tricky to get to the roots because the sort of people who had access to writing and publishing were almost exclusively men or at least very rich uh fairy tales were almost certainly stories told orally for thousands of years before that and were most likely handed down, as Jules said, from mother to daughter or grandmother to granddaughter, etc. Um, and of course, you know, from father to son as well sometimes. You can definitely imagine Puss in Boots being the kind of story that a father might tell his son as they're walking, you know, home from a hunt or something like that. Yeah, it really depends on situation and setting. And I think that's where the viewpoint characters change. I mean, we, as we we're about to say, you know, fairy tales have been shape-shifting for a long time because that's how stories survive yeah but certainly when i think it's when the types of households changed as well because Mm. it used to be that the lord of an estate and all his um thralls and vassals etc not vassals his thralls and villains etc would all share the same hall and they would all partake of the same entertainment which would be one of the household who's good at storytelling telling a story yeah absolutely um and of course sharing stories and things like that was a big winter tradition particularly and things like that as well so we can't think of it as just being you know secular one way or another yeah or or, or even defined only within one group of people um so as Jill said the nature of the story is that they do shapeshift to survive um and that they've been doing that for a very long time which is why they're hard to pin down but we are going to try our best in the brief time that we have um bearing in mind of course that we can only ever scratch the surface so if you're interested in anything that we're talking about today uh you know please do get in touch and also please kind of just continue reading on if you find out anything interesting let us know as well yeah now with that in mind let's take Take a little look at the Puss in Boots timeline. Yes, um, now Madeline's already said that um, the, it existed most likely as a folktale already and many elements have not been changed because they kind of went over certain people's heads. And yeah. I'm inclined to agree with that. Um, but the story in the form we now know it originates back to 16th century Italy. Yes. Uh, Giovanni Francesco Strappolo <laughs> fixed the narrative in its present form for all intents and purposes. Um, a little aside here, because I keep forgetting to mention it when we do these episodes and we keep talking about Strapolo. Strapolo is not actually an Italian surname for the time. Um, <laughs> Italian surnames for the time tended to focus on the place or the great family. So you obviously have the Dimici, etc. Yeah. Or um, or on their um, 
their their job or career you know de medici also obviously comes from the whole the fact that the family originally came from a, a line of apothecaries yeah so strapolo actually means babbler someone who talks a lot <laughs> um, which i find very entertaining and i think this is largely something that perhaps was a nickname for giovanni giovanni francesco and he um decided to adopt it as a kind of nom de plume uh, that may have been sticking two fingers up at his his um, detractors, or it may have been a case of, like a lot of writers, something entertains them, so they turn it into a private joke. Yeah. Or an in-joke for those who understand. Or oh, hell, he might have even just thought of it as a compliment. Like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I do talk a lot. I talk a lot about stories. Um, yeah, this is great marketing for the 16th century, basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's very, very cool. Um, okay, so um, we... <laughs> Given how many oral versions of the tale existed between Strapolo's version and the next iteration, it's yeah. quite likely that it existed in an oral tale form long before he published it in Facetious Nights in 1553. Yeah. Now, Facetious Nights is interesting because it's clearly inspired by Boccaccio's Book of Nights. Mm -hmm. um, it's called something else as well, but I can't remember. My Latin's not actually that good. Um, Boccaccio obviously inspired Geoffrey Chaucer. Yes. He was one of the things that, he was one of the people Geoffrey Chaucer read mostly when Chaucer was touring around Europe, etc. Mm -hmm. um, this is long before Strapolo was born, clearly. Yes. Um, uh, but the idea of a, a series, like an anthology of sequential tales within mm -hmm. the, the framing narrative of someone telling stories to entertain somebody else. So very much like A Thousand and One Nights, for example. <laughs> Facetious Nights is about 13 stories set within a framing narrative and it contains some of the first ever written down actual fairy tales, which I think is quite interesting. And Puss in Boots is basically one of them. That's brilliant. Okay. Fantastic. Um, now, as we said, it's you know worth noting that elements of the story appear in far older written narratives across the world as well. So um, not just within Europe. Yes. Um, now I'm going to completely slaughter this, but um, it's the pancha, pancha tantra. That's it. Yeah, pancha tantra. Uh, which <laughs> I'm so sorry to any if if we have any uh, Hindi listeners. Hindi we're listeners. Very sorry. We we're very sorry. Hindi. We're trying. Um, yeah, please, <laughs> please do correct us. We will learn. Um, which so the uh, uh, pancha tantra is a collection of Hindu tales from around the second um century uh bce so one tale features a clever cat who assists his master but does not come to such a happy end um as in puss in boots yes um so you know we we go back people have always thought ah this cat is clever <laughs> for a long time i think that's the thing isn't it anyone who's spent any time with cats and cats have been living semi-domesticated because they're never fully domesticated yeah with us probably since late the sort of late cave era yeah um and first of all they were tolerated because they were helpful and then after that we sort of became friends with them and they sort of formed colonies with us yeah um and anyone who's paid any attention to to cats and their little behaviors we we're kind of wired to be charmed by them and what's really fascinating to me, without going off on a cat ramble, which I absolutely <laughs> could, um, is the fact that the cats we have today as domestic 
pets, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. um, have evolved several behaviours that directly benefit them with humans. So, for example, the pitch and frequency of certain cat mews make women particularly react. And we can't help it because we are geared to hear those sounds as if a baby is crying. Yeah. Ergo, we are more geared, <laughs> wired basically, to respond to what the cat wants. Men yeah. will too, but women especially will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, the <laughs> what there's also the whole thing about that you know the uh, that the, there's even sort of you know you can even actually get a disease or something like. From oh, you mean brain cats. parasites? Yeah, yeah brain parasites, uh. <laughs> uh, which literally brainwash you to be uh, more helpful to cats. Um, anyway. <laughs> Uh, We're not going to get into all of that, um, but uh, yeah, you can look it up. It's a it's a real thing, um, but yeah, um, cats have literally evolved to be and are very clever in that sense um, to kind of work with humans and to get the most out of humans. Um, even the way that they vocal, you know, obviously Jules mentioned the fact that the certain pitch and stuff that they vocalize at but for the most part cats particularly with meowing and stuff like that that is something that happens between kittens and mothers so kittens will meow or make little noises to basically get their mother's attention um and their mother might you know chirp at them in 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 the same thing but for the most part adult cats don't really meow at each other that much um in in nature but they do it with humans because they basically go, ah, this is a form of communication. So if you have two domesticated cats, they might meow at each other because it's a behaviour that they have basically developed to interact with humans. So you're all part of like a little pack now. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Um, There's all sorts of little things. I mean, the the brain parasites Madeline mentioned, Toxoplasmosis gondii is what it's called. Um, And it just basically, it doesn't kill you. It just sort of, you can get it from cat feces if the cat's not very well looked after. And um, if you then don't wash your hands and things, you can it sort of colonises your brain and makes you engage in behaviours that actually benefit the cat. Mm. Um, which I find absolutely fascinating. I'm like, I can't think of anything else that's adapted to fit with humans quite as well as cats have. Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously cat lover here, but yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to our story. Um, our timeline even. From Italy, the story spread across Europe until it was picked up by Charles Perrault. The Brothers Grimm, Andrew Lang, Joseph Jacobs, and many others. Yes. Uh, and it's <laughs> Charles Perrault is always the one that makes me laugh because Charles Perrault was one of those people who tried to apply a moral to it. Um, and as with Charles Perrault, in pretty much all of his stories, he puts two morals down. Yes. So he'll um, always have one like, and then he'll always have another. But we'll get into that in a bit. We'll get to that. Yeah. You're, you're jumping ahead in your enthusiasm. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, sorry, I just I, I saw Charles Perrault and got excited. Um, <laughs> Something that Charles Perrault never probably heard during his lifetime. No, and to be honest, he would he would hate the way that uh, I got excited because I'm like, ha this idiot. Anyway, um, so let's break, do a little breakdown of the plot for those who are not as familiar with it or just as a general reminder. So in the story, there is a miller, he dies and he leaves his three sons an inheritance. His eldest son gets the mill. The second eldest gets the horse and cart and a small sum of coins. Sometimes it's a donkey, anyway. But the youngest son, the third son, inherits the cat. Um, And only the cat. 
And instead of being looked after by his brothers, uh, they turn him out. So good, good brotherly kind of, you know, support there. Um, Now, the younger son is obviously quite disappointed by this inheritance. Uh, but then the cat talks to him. Little aside, one thing that I love about the Peralt version is that he's just like, well, my brothers have got this and, you know, once I've eaten the cat, I'm not going to have anything. And the cat just goes, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Let's not jump straight to eating me, okay? Let's talk about this. And the fact that the younger brother is not sort of at all shocked that the cat can talk meant that he's, he knew that they had a talking cat and said, well, I'm just going to eat it in front of the cat. Anyway, uh, Moving on, uh, the cat urges the younger son to leave the village and to take shelter in the forest uh, because he has a plan. Uh, but first, the miller's son needs to give him a pair of boots. Yes. So, uh, for some reason and in so- some way, uh, the the miller's son who has nothing else is able to get the cat Poos in this version uh, a lovely pair of boots. So the king regularly rides through the forest and the cat kills a hare one day and then approaches the king wearing his splendid new boots. He lays the hare at the king's feet and says, this is a present, your majesty, to show appreciation for the magnificence, uh, for your magnificence from my master, le marquis de Galbaret, uh, or, or Car- uh, Carabus, sorry. Um, the king accepts, sorry, I say it in a French accent because... Parole. Uh, the king accepts the token, but he's a little bit nonplussed because uh, he hasn't actually ever heard of the Malki of Carabus. Now, again, depending on the version, sometimes the king is immediately delighted because he's like, oh, that's a very good hair. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, he, he's actually quite excited by this. Now, over time, this cat basically keeps catching game um, and keeps presenting it to the king, you know, saying, you know, as a, pre- uh, as a token of appreciation, etc. Um, and the king is very pleased by these gifts. And he's very pleased by the sort of the cat's demeanor and, and things like that. It's it, it clearly it's sort of he clearly likes it. So then one day the king spies sorry, the king, the cat spies the king traveling in his carriage with his daughter. Uh, so he orders the miller's son to take a swim in the lake. And so the miller's son is like, well, okay. He gets into the lake and immediately uh Puss hides all of his clothes. Now, as the carriage shows, the cat begins to wail about how his poor master, the Marquis of Carabus, has been robbed and thrown into the... Uh, or, or he's either been thrown into the lake or he's he was swimming in the lake and he was robbed. Now, the king, remembering the presence, um, very quickly sort of goes and saves this young man. He, go, he has some clothes sent for um, and they dress the miller's son in a splendid set of clothes uh, which actually belonged to the king himself so he's in really really lovely clothes and they let him into the carriage Um, the miller kind of quickly catches on but he says very little so he doesn't betray his origins but the king really kind of likes sort of the look of him and the princess especially likes the look of him (laughs) Um, and he also thinks that this silence means that the Marquis of Carabus is wise, um, unlike the, uh, you know, um, the peacocks who kind of strut around in court. Uh, the, the Popinjays. Is that how you say it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, 
so while this is happening and while they're sort of going about uh, the cat runs ahead and at every village he threatens the people into compliance saying um, that they have to cheer for his master um, or sometimes it's that he goes to a field and he says you have to say that um, this field belongs to the to the Marquis of Carabus um, otherwise I'll cut you into mincemeat um, and they all just go okay um, so when the king's carriage passes, the people, they cheer for him, or sometimes the king stops and goes, why? What fine land? Who does this belong to? And they immediately go, well, this is the land of, of the Marquis of Carabus, etc. Um, so the king immediately gets the sense, wow, the Marquis has a lot of land and he is clearly very, very powerful. The cat runs on ahead to a castle where a horrible ogre lives um, and he rules over all of the lands that they've just passed through. Uh, now the cat calls upon the ogre and tells him he must leave the castle because it now belongs to his master, the, uh, the Marquis of Carabus. The ogre obviously laughs and tells the cat he has no intention of leaving. Then he transforms himself into a lion, which frightens the cat quite badly. Now sometimes in other versions of the tale, uh, instead the cat comes in and charms him instead and goes, you know, I just wanted to meet you because yeah. I've heard you're amazing, etc. But anyway, it always... It involves basically uh, the 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 um, the ogre using transformation magic, demonstrating his transformation magic. So, uh, having been a little bit scared by the lion, the cat sort of rallies himself and then says, "Well, you know, it's easy to turn yourself into something big. Um, you know, it's not very impressive since you're already big. You know, true power and mastery will come from being able to make yourself very, very small because that would be very tricky." Um, and of course, the ogre, being an idiot, goes, ah, well, <laughs> I'll have you know, I can transform into anything. And he transforms into a mouse, at which point the cat immediately pounces on him, um, killing him and eating him. Just like that. Um, so clever cat. Uh, he then orders the ogre's servants to prepare a, a great feast for their new master, the Marquis of Carabus. And again, what I love is that consistently you've got the peasants, you've got the servants, and they're like, we really don't care. We don't <laughs> like, care who rules it us. You're make all the same. A damn bit of a difference to us. Like um, and in some versions as well, actually, the ogre was about to have a feast with all of his friends. Yeah. Um, and so there's already a feast laid out. But anyway, um, so when the king's carriage arrives, the king, the Millicent, and the princess um, are kind of shown in with every courtesy, uh, with the cat bowing in his splendid boots and acting. Um, you know, sort of, uh, oh, welcome, master, come in, uh, uh, welcome your majesty to our humble home. And of course, it's not a humble home, it's a massive castle. <laughs> um, and the king immediately, that's it, no, the king immediately sort of says, uh, do you want to take, do you want to marry my daughter to, to the miller's son? Um, <laughs> in some versions, in Perrault's version, they sit down and, and eat and, and obviously there's a lot of wine involved. And after the sort of the, you know, the, after the first glass, he's like, I really like this guy. I'm going to give him sort of a place in my court. And then after the second glass, he's like, I really like this guy. I'm going to grant him this. And then it's like, after the third one, he's like, do you want to marry my daughter? <laughs> and the daughter's like, yeah, yeah, please let's get married. Cause she's fallen in love with him. The miller's son is like, sure. Um, <laughs> Why not? Who am I saying no to, yeah. <laughs> to royalty? Yeah. So there are several endings depending on where the story is being told from. Uh, but in the original form, the cat therefore gets away with everything and lives a very comfortable life where he actually only then has to kill mice if he feels like it. And I like the fact that the focus on the ending isn't and then the young master, you know, lived happily ever after. It's, we know that, but the focus is on the fact that the cat now just gets to live very happily, never has to lift a paw unless he wants to. <laughs> the end. <laughs> yes. 
Okay, let's look at some variations because that's obviously the basic outline. That's certainly the basic outline most people are familiar with and it yes. owes a lot to Perrault, but it also owes quite a lot to some of the earlier versions we mentioned. So, uh, first of all, Constantino Fortunato, which means Lucky Constantine, mm -hmm. uh, by Giovanni Francesco Strappolo, our friend, the babbler. Uh, it was published <laughs> in 1553 in Facetious Nights. Um, it's got the same basic outline. Uh, yeah. But you, it's really worth noticing that in these original Italian versions, the cat does not wear boots. That That is a Perrault invention. That's something yeah. that Perrault brought in. And there's a very good reason why, which we'll get into. Yes. Um, it's also interesting to me that in Constantino Fortunato, it is not a miller. It is a poor widow uh, right. from Bohemia who dies, leaving her three sons. I believe it's a kneading tray for making bread. Uh a rolling, uh, I want to say a, a pasteboard, a pasteboard for making pastry, and mm -hmm. a cat. And again, the youngest son, Constantino, receives the cat. Um, yeah. Then it more or less follows the same sort of thing, except that the cat sort of deliberately goes to the palace and courts the king on Constantino's behalf. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing with the suit of clothes and everything does does happen. Mm. Uh, the princess takes one look at him and goes, that's the man for me. Yeah. Um, Although there, there is a part where, you know, Constant, all of these stories talk about how the, the third son is, mm -hmm. is very good looking, how yeah. he is a big strapping youth, um, very well favoured. Um, it's really interesting in this uh, Strapolo version that uh, despite the fact the Miller's son is very good looking, he has sort of lesions and things because he, his brothers have been starving him right. um, and he's not in a very good state. And the cat takes him down to the river and tends to him and washes him all over with her tongue. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that I think is worth mentioning. In all of the versions, except Perrault's version, the cat is female. Naturally. <laughs> so um, I think that's quite interesting as well. It also makes a point in um, in Lucky Constantine that the cat is a fairy creature. Yeah. It's very definitely said. I think that's the only one where they very definitely say the cat is a fairy creature. Some of the others is implied. But yeah, it's it's basically a fairy creature. Um, but otherwise, it follows basically the same plot. Um, then you get on to Caglioso, which is by Gian Battista Basile, which was published in Pentamerone in 1634. Again, this is very similar to Lucky Constantine, but um, it's kind of a bit more brutal in a way, because this is the one where it it follows the same basic plot and then it adds a codicil on the end. Mm. Um, Caglioso is so grateful to the cat once he's married his princess or whatever and got his big house and his money, etc., that he promises her, and it's very definitely, he promises her mm -hmm. that when she dies, he will have her embalmed and he will put her in a coffin made of gold. And the cat is kind of like much gratified to hear this but then she thinks about it and thinks, I wonder if he will. So she pretends to be dead. Mm -hmm. And um, the Caglioso's wife runs in and says, oh, your cat, she's died. And she's really distraught. She's quite fond of the cat. And he says, well, you'd better throw it out on the midden then. At which point the cat leaps up in an absolute fury and curses Caglioso and says, you will lose everything you have gained by my, my wit and wisdom and runs off and is never seen again. And Caglioso ends the story in utter ruin. Yep. And uh, there's 
again, you can actually then really see some of the folk elements, which is that favor gained from the Fae, you know, if you... <laughs> yeah, it's definitely... Fulfill your promises. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is definitely... It's not stated in the way it is in the Strapolo version, but it no. is kind of implied that she is a fairy creature and she ought to have been treated with respect. Yeah. Um, would you like to take the next one? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Le Maître Chat, ou Le Chat uh, Bot, uh, Charles Perrault, uh, 1697, um, was published in Histoire au Comte de Ton Passé, um, uh, avec des mor uh, moralités, um, or Le Comte... Uh... <laughs> I am French and even this is too much. Um, and... Um, <laughs> Or le con de ma mère uh, Loy. <laughs> In case anyone's wondering what that is, it's basically history, uh, history or stories of times past with morals uh, or mother goose tales. I think it's a loose translation of yes. the last bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, the French uh, don't do anything small. No, ever. they really don't. They're like, <laughs> if we're going to have a title, it's got to at least you know take up at least half of the word count. Um, they, they really go for it when it comes to titles. Um, <laughs> uh, so this version we get, we and this is the version I think also that Andrew Lang then later on translates um, yeah. because... Uh, uh, well, no, because, uh, actually the Lord Peter one's different, but you're right in some of... Joseph Jacobs one is definitely from Yes, sorry. Uh, yeah, jo Joseph Jacobs, sorry, not Andrew Lang in this version. Um, but we we kind of, this is the version, Perrault's version is definitely the one which is most famous, the translation is most famous in, in England. It's the version that we know the best. So it's the version where Poos is definitely male um, and where, uh, yeah, the story is pretty much exactly as just previously described with the happy ending um, and it finishes there and obviously also one of the big main things is that it becomes Puss in Boots so the, the cat actually gets a set of boots. Yeah it's uh, that's a really interesting addition. I mean there's a mm. couple of things you mentioned the bit at the beginning where you're the third miller son sitting down thinking well I've come off really badly in this inheritance malarkey um, because I've got a cat and once I've eaten the cat and turned her fur into a muff what am I going to do? And the yeah. cat sort of looks up and says, I could I could make your fortune for you if I had a mind to. The cat's probably going, I don't think I'm going to stay around and be eaten, but I quite yeah. like this comfortable house life. Um, so um, it's really, I think something that's worth mentioning all the way through is that mm. there is a certain amount of suspicion attached to the cat in all of these tales so far. Yeah. It's not like someone's gone... Oh, poor cat. Cat must be hungry too. I love cats. Let's look after the cat. No, they've all been kind yeah. of like, oh, great, I've inherited a cat. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. and it's a suspicious creature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what, this is one of the interesting things is that when you start to look at Parole and when you also start to look at the kind of the motif of the boots and stuff like that, we start to maybe get an idea that there are kind of influences in terms of French folklore, French um, folk tales and things like that, and as well as some of the things that might kind of have just already been on his mind. Um, now, on the one side we can say, okay, did the Miller's son buy the boots? Or um, 
has it actually, is there perhaps a strand that has been lost within kind of the folk tales, the spoken tales, where actually it's a symbol of the fact that the miller's son takes a leap of faith and gives his boots to the cat. Um, yeah. And in doing so, we also then start to get this this idea that the cat is a servant, essentially. Um, yes. And what's interesting is the kind of the idea and this sort of story of, of the servant roles. And if we then, the cat stops kind of being so much a fairy creature and is instead actually a servant. Um, and there's this idea that servants can't aren't necessarily can't necessarily be trusted. Servants can be the ones who get about with sort of crafty sort of things, uh, but they are also the ones who can get it done. If you treat your servant right, they will help you in the long run, and you can actually kind of keep your your hands clean. Um, you know, so so there is a little bit of that potentially, but again, it's from strands which we might have actually completely lost now and only kind of exist as hints within Peralt's sort of text. So for me, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's worth, I don't want to be funny here, but the French and a shoe motif is, is a huge thing. Um, the yeah. idea that you, I think it's the, the thing and what the shoe is made of as well, um, because right up until sort of the 1800s the peasantry in france wore wooden shoes yeah um and it, it you know quite a few of the, the really dirt poor peasants couldn't even afford that so they went barefoot in the summer and they went barefoot right up until it got too cold for that um, yeah this isn't unusual right up until sort of 1920 the irish were going barefoot unless they were born to um to relative wealth there was such a huge poverty gap um, in England. Yes, you didn't necessarily have really good shoes or anything, um, but a pair of boots or a pair of shoes had to last you for for years. Yeah, and you know, were and quite you know, Victorian London quite often they had boots with cardboard soles because they couldn't afford anything better. So this whole idea of shoes showing that you're coming up in the world is is a big one, and a large amount mm. of that has come actually from Perrault's fairy tale version. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And there's there is kind of also, um, and again, you kind of have to sort of put yourself back within the context, the mindset of the day. Um, and we kind of we we talked about what what's it uh, someone's boots that the the idea of of, of oh, what from Discworld. Oh, the 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 economy of boots, whereby yeah. the reason the rich were very good at not being. At being rich was because they could afford to buy a proper pair of boots, which would last them for years. Whereas um, the, the poor could only afford something with cardboard soles, very much like Victorian London. Yeah. Um, ergo, uh, what, what they what they actually um, that meant was they were spending a good proportion of their wages every three months just to keep themselves just... shod. So they were always having to spend money. Whereas the rich were kind of like, yeah, I can buy a really good pair of leather boots and it'll last me for seven years. Yeah. Um, and what's kind of interesting then is actually if we look in terms of the boots, not just being a random thing of the cat saying, well, I want a pair of shoes because uh, it's a cat, um, but actually it being a form of investment. Yeah. Um, and that's it. that sort of makes it interesting. Um, and there's also kind of another sort of side to it as well, 
which is that you could say, well, it's all just part of the con. And we'll kind of <laughs> touch into that later on about, you know, uh, how wealthy do you have to be if you if you can afford to put <laughs> put boots on your cat? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even if the cat is an obvious stand in for a servant, how wealthy are you to? I mean, it, that goes all the way back to sort of ancient Egypt, where if you dressed your slaves in silk and gilded sandals, then you were mm. very, very wealthy indeed. And you didn't want anything ugly in your presence kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, very similar. Okay, the poor Miller's boy and the cat, um, Brothers Grimm, 1812, from their Kinder und Hausmarschen, um, children and household tales, or tales for the house and children, kind of, whichever way you want to translate it. Yeah. Um, obviously, without going into the contention between the Brothers Grimm and their issue with the French, again, that this is their version of it. And it is significantly different. It's different enough that even though I'm certain they heard the Perrault version and they heard the... Uh, Strapolo version that um, I think you can definitely say it's that it's its own tale. Mm. It follows the same basic imprint, except that the two older brothers don't want another mouse to feed; they want to drown the cat. Right. And great. the younger brother, who in the story is called a dunce, or rather is considered very simple, doesn't want to to do this. He doesn't see what the cat has done wrong, so he rescues her, and in return, the cat helps him and says if you will do these things for me then I will see to it that you are you know well looked after in your life um, now in some versions of this the cat actually turns out to be a lost princess mm -hmm. who tricks her father into making hands the youngest son very very wealthy indeed so she can marry him <laughs> and sometimes she turns out to be a fairy type woman although that's never actually the term used who yeah. again sort of presents a lot of it to the princess who then assists her in tricking her father into making hands a very, very wealthy man so she can marry him and he ends up being king. Um, I think something nasty also happens to the two elder brothers because the brothers Grimm cannot leave that alone. Yeah. <laughs> I feel it's quite funny because the, they seem to have a real thing about punishing siblings and I'm like, are you two okay? <laughs> Do you want to talk about it? What's, what's going on here? <laughs> So it, it's different enough that it's its own story, but I'm pretty sure they were influenced by Perrault, even if you would never get them to admit it. Yeah. And again, it's also worth um, remembering that obviously the, the Grimm's were trying to collect sort of German stories as well. And so even though, you know, they said, oh, well, no, we're not being influenced by Perrault, uh, you might very well have people, you know, the people who they were collecting their stories from being influenced by them, or it goes to prove as well the kind of how widespread orally these stories were across the countries across you know within Italy within France within Germany and stuff like that that there were versions of it but it was you know these stories had been spread anyway yeah. for a long time um so yeah <laughs> um we then have we we're going to jump uh somewhere a little bit hotter now uh, to the Zanzibar tales. <laughs> yeah, this is... Um, I like this version, actually. This is the story of a gazelle. Um, it was collected by George W. Bateman in 1901 in his Zanzibar tales, but it's actually from a much older source. And you can... you can If you track the story, you can see 
how trade routes and things were changing things because it started off as a Swahili oral tale. So if you mm. remember the story about the talking skull, yeah, <laughs> I mentioned a few weeks ago, yeah, um, same oral tradition about a gazelle, and it's worth knowing that in sort of African type mythology in general, um, a gazelle is representative of grace, beauty, graciousness, and decency. So that's mm. the animal that it, it's that's what it's associated with as an animal. So um, it's not nat naturally a trickster creature, but it's one where it's like if you treat the gazelle well, it will treat you very well as well. Yeah, um, I I kind of like this story. Um, when George W. Bateman picked it up, um, when it was quite established in Zanzibar, which is an island off, I want to say the west coast of Africa, but east coast of Africa. Sorry, almost right. <laughs> um, at that point, Zanzibar was ruled by Arabs from the Sultanate of Oman. Mm -hmm. um, and they very much liked the story and they kind of took it as their own. So the, the version we've got is very much the Arabian version. Yeah. Um, it follows a beggar whose name was Al-Hamdani. And every day he would go into the village rubbish heap to scratch around for scraps of food. Um, he's, his search was very hard. Sometimes all he'd get was a few grains and seeds. Then one day he saw something glinting in the midden and it turned out to be a silver coin, a piece of eight, as we would know it. Mm -hmm. um, and he thought about going to the market and buying food for himself. And then he thought, no, 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 that, that means I'm fed for today. But this silver coin should be saved for something far better. Yeah. Um, a few days later, a trader came along. Uh, his donkey was pulling a cage in which sat a beautiful, gentle gazelle with long pointing horns. And he saw the gazelle and thought she was lovely and... Eventually, he manages to convince the trader that he can buy the gazelle. So he trades his last silver coin for this gazelle. Mm -hmm. And so he has a companion. So both of them are sort of in the midden heap trying to scratch around for things. And the girl stays with him out of sort of friendship. And eventually she wakes him up one night and says, I'm very grateful to you, master, because you have given me my life. But I'm too hungry to sleep. And he said... Who's talking to me? <laughs> oh, no, it's finally happened. <laughs> Basically, that, that is the feel of the story. And she says, no, no, don't fear. It is I, Chijipa, your, your, um, your faithful gazelle. If you let me go in the morning, I will go and graze and I will return to you in the evening. And he's a bit unsure because he doesn't want to lose his last beautiful, valuable thing. Mm. Um, but, which again, I think is a very telling bit of foreshadowing. He doesn't want to lose his last thing. Yeah, But he lets her go and the villagers mock him and say, well, you won't get it back. I mean, the villagers are absolute shits because they're not helping this guy. Um, anyway, she goes out and she grazes and she comes back. So this becomes a regular thing. And then on the fifth day, she finds a hard lump out in, on the plain, turns it over with her hoof and thinks it's a diamond. Um, and she thinks about taking it back to him and then decides that Al-Handani would most likely be accused of thievery. And that's not the best way of doing it. And she doesn't quite trust him to be sensible with it. Right. <laughs> There's a definite hint of that. So she gallops off to the Sultan's palace where she asks to be admitted to see the Sultan. And then she places the, this huge diamond at the Sultan's feet and says, this is a gift from my, my master, Al-Handani, who is a very wealthy man indeed, etc. And then it kind of follows the similar Puss in Boots type story. Yeah. Um, instead of him swimming and losing his clothing... Um, because at this point the sultan's already gone, wow, if he's that wealthy and he's just giving away a rock that size, he's perfect for one of my daughters. So he sends the gazelle back saying, can you tell him that he 
he he has free reign to marry one of my daughters. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's going to be a problem because Al Hamdani can't actually turn up with a wedding party in beautiful clothes because he's a beggar. Yeah. So the gazelle says, "No, trust me. Lie down on the ground." And then she stamps all over him with her hooves and she whacks him around with her horns until he's bruised and bloody. And then she runs off to the Sultan's palace and says, Ah, alas, my master who came bringing so many gifts for you, etc., has been robbed and lies out there on yonder plain kind of thing. The Sultan thinks this is horrendous, sends people out to get him, they take him in, they dress him beautifully, etc. And uh, the, the process of the whole wedding goes, goes ahead. Meanwhile, the gazelle's like, well, he can't live in the midden anymore. He's going to have a wife. Yeah. <laughs> so she goes off looking for a suitable house for him. And uh, basically, Kishipa eventually comes upon this beautiful white house, which is studded with emeralds, and she knocks on the door. I love how sort of anthropomorphic she is. They talk about her knocking on the door as if she's got a hand. <laughs> yes, I kind of like to imagine how she did it. <laughs> you know, it's that gift that everyone does of, of the deer, which sort of pulls off its hooves and it has little hands underneath them. <laughs> it's horrifying. <laughs> um, anyway, the housekeeper looks out of the window and says, "You know, be off with you." And the girl, gazelle's like, "No, at least tell me who the house belongs to." And the housekeeper's like, "Well, it's your funeral because the house belongs to a seven-headed serpent who came in and killed the rightful master." Um, and he'll eat you if he comes back and finds you. And Kishipazla said, well, is there a, a good sword in the house? And the housekeeper said, well, of course there's a good sword in the house. Look at the house. <laughs> and Kishipaz said, if you let me in, I will ensure that that man will never trouble you again. So the housekeeper's kind of like, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. <laughs> Let's the talking gazelle in, gives the talking gazelle a sword. I don't know how the gazelle's supposed to be wielding it, but apparently she takes it up in her hooves. And then she positions herself by the door. When the seven-headed serpent arrives at the door, he calls out to the housekeeper, this poor housekeeper, seriously, and says, what is that delicious aroma I can smell? And the housekeeper sticks her head out the window, now fully on Kishipa's side, and says, ah, that is fresh new meat, my master. You come in and you shall taste of it. So he opens the door and sticks one of his seven heads in, and Kishipa immediately snicks it off with a blade. And because he's clearly very, very stupid, he does the same with all the other heads as well. <laughs> oh, something seems to be wrong with this head. Uh, let me just... <laughs> there's, 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 an excellent, there's an excellent moment where he, the second head's come off and the other heads go, what has scratched me? And then, you know, start one by one sneaking through the door. Um, <laughs> anyway, they clear him, they clear up the body, they get rid of it. The housekeeper helps him hush it up and... Uh, Kijipa has the house ready to receive her, her beggar master, who is now basically a prince, married to a princess. Um, so it follows the Puss in Boots thing in that respect. Where it gets to the ending is where it's interesting, because Kijipa is kept in good comfort in that house. But mm. Alhamdani forgets that he came from absolute poverty. Yeah. And he becomes very careless of other people. And... Um, Kijipa falls ill and the housekeeper goes to him and says, you know, your beloved gazelle is very ill, will you not have her attended to? And he said, you know, she's just a gazelle. And his wife, who is very fond of Kijipa, begs mm -hmm. him to do something to save Kijipa's life and he says, well, she's just a gazelle, so what if she dies, throw her out on the midden. And yeah. uh, Kijipa dies, 
and the wife and the housekeeper conspire together and have her properly sort of cremated and given funeral rites. Mm-hmm. And the next day when Al-Hamdani wakes up, he is once more dressed as a beggar and living in the midden searching for scraps. But the princess's wife is rid of a noisome husband and lives happily and content in that house with the housekeeper for the rest of her life. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I've probably missed a few bits, but I really love that story. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. And again, I love that as well because we really start to see the themes which Peralt kind of completely failed to to see yeah absolutely (laughs) very definitely um yes so the next one uh, that i've got on my list is lord peter which is a norwegian variation and it was collected Mm. by andrew lang in 1903 in the crimson fairy book now we all know that andrew lang is not comfortable with certain fairy tale themes and removes them when he can yeah um so he skipped over a lot of things and he was clearly not keen on the fact that there was no moral to the story so in his version lord peter which is what the cat calls Mm -hmm. um her master again it's a female cat Mm. um he has the cat again rescued by the youngest brother and they're very they're very fond of each other they get on really really well together Uh, it follows the usual puss in boots type thing but once he reaches the end of the journey of the story the cat transforms herself into a beautiful young woman and it's like it, it's me i've been your companion these many years and now you're a wealthy man because of me and um he, and uh, the now lord peter uh, basically says even were i not so greatly indebted to you i would marry you um so they get married and uh, that's it yeah <laughs> Andrew Lang. Andrew Lang's translations are a lot of the ones that we are familiar with. Um, Though, again, it's quite interesting that even though Andrew Lang's translations of, you know, things like The Snow Child as well and stuff like that, he's the one who's kind of responsible for these translations, um, is in that that's not the version of the story that we know the best. Uh, We know the Joseph Jacobs one uh, the best. I mean, there are some Andrew Lang versions where I'm like... Actually, I kind of like that one. I almost like it better. Not Puss in Boots, but some of the others. I'm like, I almost yeah. like that better. Um, but And then there were others where I'm like, what were you on? What were you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Andrew Lang feels like a very sensitive Victorian gentleman, if that makes sense. He does. It's like, I'm writing this for my daughter and it must be perfect. Yeah, he's just <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> Let's just uh, scrub that away a tiny bit. <laughs> Um, okay, The Matchmaking Jackal was collected by Lee Bahali Day. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, in Folk Tales of Bengal in 1912. But it just goes to show how much of a progression there was from the early 1800s, late 1700s, from people collecting folk tales of certain places and then pushing themselves out further and further to collect folk tales of other places. And the ethnicity of the people collecting the folk tales, you know, became important mm-hmm. to everyone, um, which I quite like. Um, this does follow a very similar Puss in Boots type narrative where you have a young son who has nothing um, and I think he's a weaver's son in fact and he's not very bright at all he's quite dim in this one this is not just the Brothers Grimm saying oh he was a bit of a simpleton because he didn't drown the cat this is kind of like oh you dumb kind of thing (laughs) when you read it 
but he's not a bad person that's the important thing yeah. a jackal hears him lamenting the fact that he's just been thrown out of the house by his brothers with nothing so the jackal says i'll help you and the jackal does lots of very cunning things for quite spurious motives you get the impression the jackal's doing it just out of mischief really because you know it's yeah. kind of a further fuck of it type thing <laughs> And there are a few times during the story, it's quite a long story, where the jackal very, very nearly gets caught out in its lies. Yeah. Um, which makes it all the more entertaining. Um, now, on the wedding night, the princess, I mean, the jackal has told this weaver's son that he mustn't speak too much because he'll give himself away. Yeah, because he's <laughs> <like>, an idiot. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you're not very bright and you're clearly not a prince. But I've told everyone you are and you're quite good looking so they're willing to believe it and they're happy for you not to talk too much. Don't talk too much. Don't talk too much to your princess on your wedding night. Again, you, get the in, you get some of the inherent fairy tale sexuality in there. Yeah. Um, but he can't help himself. So on the wedding night, he's lying in bed and he's looking at the canopy of the bed and he starts counting aloud. And his wife says, well, what are you counting, my husband? And he tells her that um, the formation of the overhead canopy, the wooden struts and things, what, what he would be able to weave upon them because they were such fine wood. <laughs> so she's lying there thinking, someone's just married me to a weaver. This isn't a prince. Yeah. She goes to speak to the Queen Mother in the morning, but the Queen Mother is more persuaded by the jackal and says, no, I, I think this is probably just early wedding nerves. Don't worry, he, we've married you to a good man. Yeah. The jackal takes them back to the hut where, where the weaver's son has been living and says, <laughs> behold your palace. So there's something very sort of, again, the spurious motives of the jackal as in, I won you a princess, here is some wealth kind of thing. Oh, there yeah. you go. You're back in your hut with your princess. How do you yeah. like them apples? And it's told in a way that's quite funny because the, the the princess is kind of quite put out with the jackal, quite put out with the fact that she's been married off to a weaver yes. without any choice in the matter. <laughs> um, and on top of it, she realises that her husband is a complete dumbass. And she's, like, she's basically saddled with him. Yeah. <laughs> the story goes that she basically decides to make the best of it and she tells her she starts telling her husband what to do she says i'll make you rich she said the jackals kind of left you in the lurch i will make you rich so what she does is she tells him to go and get her a certain amount of flour which she mixes into a paste and mm -hmm. here's where you could then get into real sort of hindu mythology because she rubs the paste on her body and because she's a true princess when it dries and she peels it off it become it peels off in strips of gold and she does this every day until they've got a great quantity of gold. So then yeah. she engages carpenters and masons, etc. And she has the hut demolished and a great palace built. At which point she writes to her father and says, you know, it's a great shame you haven't visited me since my wedding. And her father turns up with her mother and his other wives, etc. And they're all astounded at the great wealth and everything. And uh, um, the fact that the princess has set up a number of animal hospitals throughout the the town on the way up as well and the animals are all well cared for and they're all mm -hmm. chewing beetle leaves you know the beetle nut yeah terrible addictive thing that's really bad for your teeth and will give you cancer but you know it was a, it was a sign of great wealth to be able to chew the leaves yeah um so even the animals are indulging in it um and she ends the story quite well by sort of outdoing the jackal that's pretty cool 
Yes. Nobody gets punished. There's no real moral other than what sometimes life will throw you a curveball and you've got to make the best of it. Yeah. <laughs> life may throw you a curveball, but... <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I had never heard of that version until today. No, I did a bit of digging and it was like, oh yeah, actually that is basically Puss in Boots, except the jackal's less well-intentioned. <laughs> yeah, the jackal's just a bit of an arsehole. Um, though, to be honest, in some versions of Puss in Boots, the cat is also a bit of an arsehole. Yeah. Um, we also then have the Earl of Cattenborough, which is again the Joseph Jacobs, Joseph Jacobs one um, from 1912, um, which can be found in Europa's fairy book. And that is, I think, one that is very much a translation of Perrault's, with, I mean, some other influences, I think, as well. Yeah, it's almost identical, except obviously he is the Earl of Cattenborough, not the Marquis of Carabas. Yeah. Um, but it's noticeable that it shares similar ending to um, the Caglioso story by Basile, mm. in that when the cat dies and his wife is upset about it and is saying, you know, the cat's died, he just says, we'll chuck her out onto the midden. Mm. At which point the cat is so furious, she leaps up and starts again, female cat, starts screaming at him. And he falls to his knees, suddenly remembering everything he owes to her and begs her forgiveness. Um, she finally relents, which is the most unrealistic part of the entire story, because if you piss off a cat that much, good luck. Um, <laughs> and uh, they all live happily ever after kind of thing. Yeah. So it's more like Joseph Jacobs kind of attached a bit of a moral to the end of it and didn't really want his characters punished. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the okay, well, it was a moment of you know foolishness, and again, <laughs> so in that way, you do get Joseph Jacobs actually succeeding in having a moral, which is you know basically saying, um, remember where you came from, you know, remember who got you there, never take other people for granted, you yes. know, uh, which is a great lesson and this is the bit that really makes me laugh is that te you would think therefore that that version which actually has a moral attached to it and a universal moral that will always be kind of you know relevant throughout the ages can be translated across you know generations you'd have thought that would be the one that most people knew and yet for some reason <laughs> Peralt's, Peralt's one, one is the one that sticks. It's really yeah. interesting because the morals from Peralt's ones follow thusly. It's like, first moral, there is great advantage in receiving a large inheritance, but diligence and ingenuity are worth more than wealth acquired from others, which is immediately sort of thrown out by the story because the third Miller's son does absolutely sod all except what the cat tells him to. He shows yeah. no ingenuity or diligence. No, and it's not actually... In, and the thing is, it's like, is it... He's calling it ingenuity, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's trickery. It's a con. The it's a con. It's the cat running a series of successful cons. Exactly. Yes. Um, and then literally murdering someone and taking their land. It's con and it's just flat out theft and murder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that kind of fits with a cat's personality, to be honest. Not yes. doing cats down, but it's kind of like they are what they are. Yeah. Um, the second moral, if a miller's son can win the heart of a princess in so short a time, causing her to gaze at him with lovelorn eyes, it must be due to his clothes, his appearance and his youth. These things do play a role in matters of the heart. And it's like, again, it's like, maybe, 
but that's very very thinly sketched there it is yeah and you're really reaching yeah and it's kind of funny because his his morals almost sort of contradict each other yes you know um and he and with Perrault, he is definitely trying to make this story, which is so popular and which, you know, so many people like, he's trying to make it accessible. And he has failed to understand that this version of the story, um, which again, probably largely influenced by the, the version which was being told in France at the time and which he'd heard, um, is entirely about mocking the aristocracy. Um, and actually highlights a theme instead, which is that there is no difference between um, people of different, and I say classes in inverted commas, there's no difference between a king and a miller's son, except the clothes, basically. You cannot, the, first of all, the it's very easy to trick the aristocracy, you just have to flatter them and give them things. Um, and second of all, that actually... Um, wealth gets you wealth, essentially. It's an entire, if you look at it from a social standpoint, it's an entire mockery and conversation about how the, the rigged system and uh, completely sort of takes away, strips away this idea that um, the, the noble class were in some way better uh, inherently than the, than the working class essentially yeah um, um, it's saying there's literally no difference between us um you know as long you know the only thing that is the difference is that if is money and you cannot tell the difference between us um because there's nothing actually that separates us we're all just human yeah your ad- your money has bought you advantages yeah essentially education the, the ability to turn a pretty phrase in court etc yeah um, so yeah, that sort of brings us on to the main tropes. Now we've mentioned the boots yeah. and the fact that they are signifiers of well, if you can afford to shoe your servants, then you must be very wealthy indeed. Yeah. So you know, wealth, prosperity, um, gentility, uh, but also investment and things like that as well. Yeah. Um, and again, it depends on sort of what level you kind of uh, you take it at and. I think, weirdly enough, uh, another reason that Perrault's story has survived so well is that it, it actually swung very well with a lot of the working class as well. In yeah. that pe- people went, actually, we can relate to this, and not because of the reasons that you think <laughs> Perrault. <laughs> like, no, forget the morals. The way that you've written this whole story is hilarious to us because you are actually making our commentary for us. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Um, there's also the animal helper, which appears in many, many stories, sometimes in a very minor capacity, but certainly yeah. in Puss in Boots in a leading starring role. Um, yeah. And especially a trickster character like a cat. And the yeah. cat in this is thoroughly immoral in everything she does. Yeah. Um, there is, and again, it depends, you know, with the sort of the trickster animal, you sometimes get a fox or things like that. One of the things that is kind of a consistent theme is the idea of loyalty in that she will have some kind of loyalty to her, to her master. Um, This might be because she's sort of been put into a position where she has to, in order to survive. This might be because he saved her, um, etc. But that the moment he doesn't show loyalty to her, or to him, uh, 
the fortunes will be reversed. So it's actually not, I'm loyal and therefore everything I do is for you. It's, we're friends, this is a two-way thing here. If you ever take me for granted, you will regret it. Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, I mean, the whole mindset of the, I think it really sort of became focused around sort of the Aristotle type Mm -hmm. time. Um, of yes well of course servants lie and cheat and steal etc because they are a baser class of being which is something that is very much as you say Perrault kind of missed the point there yeah Um, but it's something that's being it's being mocked um, because obviously everything has come to 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 the miller's son because of the uh, because of the cat because of the servant yeah Um, and the fact that if you then turn around and try and shaft your servant your servant, who is probably cleverer than you, just hasn't had your advantages, will most definitely uh, sort you out. Perfect example of this. I don't know if you've watched um, Our Flag Means Death, but there's this fantastic scene where you've got all these nobles um, and they completely destroy this whole social event uh, because basically the servants know all of the dirty secrets. They know all of the truths. They know, you know, they have all the receipts um, about the you know the people that they work for um and they they just give them up they're willing to give them up because actually they have no loyalty to them because these people have no loyalty in return um and so there is this kind of this comment of yeah you've got to remember that the people who see you at your most vulnerable you know um you have got to, they have power over you more than you might actually necessarily think yeah. you know Um, And there have definitely been situations where, you know, in the past things have been revealed, you know, uh, truths have come out, servants have been able to, or or workers have been able to destroy their masters um, or their bosses um, in certain capacities, though of course it was always a little bit harder. And in this case it's, no, I did everything for you and that means I can also undo it all for you because you are an idiot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's something that turns up in in books like the Domestic Domestic Servants Compendium. There was actually yeah. books written on this in the early Victorian era, where it's like a good servant should blend into the background like furniture. And it's like, mm. yeah, a good servant would just basically be unseen or just taken for granted. But as you say, yeah, anything you do in front of a servant isn't being seen by a chair or a table, it's being seen by a person. Yeah. And weirdly enough, this came up in conversation in that, you know, the trope, the butler did it. Yeah. So um, someone made a great observation and I have to kind of follow up on this a little bit. So um, don't take me too seriously on it, but I I trust this person's observation, which is that um, in the first instance of a published book, where the butler actually was responsible for the murder or or the theft or something like that. Um, That book was published two years after um, there was a whole kind of essay written about how annoying the trope of the butler always did it was. So the first sort of published written kind of example of it comes after people have already been complaining about it. Yes. um, Which suggests that it was a common theme in terms of uh you know like penny dreadfuls and stuff like that that you've got a common theme and one thing that kind of made me laugh was that i said it's sort of exactly like the fear we have of machines rising against us now which is oh something we've always just used we haven't really thought of we you know like we don't even consider as human you know um they just work for us uh they could never turn against us and then this horrifying idea of oh god they could turn against us um you know 
yeah it, it's it's always this oh no what if the thing that we rely on but that we don't treat very well <laughs> turns against us at any yeah, moment uh, it may also refer to the idea that if you do something wrong you blame the servant so it's kind yeah. of like yeah the butler did it it's kind of like the the historical version of my dog at my homework yeah <laughs> okay absolutely um yeah uh, just a quick look at the final tropes um it's worth mentioning the ogre. The ogre first appears in the Perrault version. Uh, yeah. Before that, the cat takes over the castle of a knight who has, you know, very conveniently died, but the cat didn't have anything to do with the murder kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the ogre is a very good stand-in for, for Aristo as well. Um, in the, it, it just happens to be... I love the fact that it just happens to be an ogre who lives in this castle, who rules all this land, and the king is uh, a king at no point has gone, oh my god, there's an ogre. Um, there's, it's just kind of been a, a normal thing. And what's interesting is if you look at a, other French folklore, and I think I've mentioned this in the past, um, you will actually see ogres and giants being mentioned. Um, like, there's actually a, f- a piece of folklore about my the local area that I'm from, which is that two of the knolls, two of the hills, were actually created by an ogre passing through and emptying out his his shoes. Oh, thank God you said shoes. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Empty, he, had, <laughs> he, had a, he had a couple of rocks in his shoes, he emptied them out, and it created this, you know, this kind of, this ballet and stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of ogres within the story. Um, which actually, if you kind of look at and analyse, you can say, actually, this probably doesn't represent an ogre. It probably represents an army. Uh, sorry, it doesn't represent an ogre. Obviously, it doesn't represent an ogre. Um, but, you know, this actually probably represents an army being led by a knight, um, uh, an aristo of some kind. So ogres kind of being representative of of Aristo, of being kind of representative of particularly cruel or nasty or powerful people, um, sort of makes sense in, in that, again, Perrault might not have been aware of it. He might have just heard, oh, there's an ogre in this story. Yeah. Um, you know, particularly because I think in the Perrault version, it's, and he was going to have all of his ogre friends around. Um, and you can't imagine that just the French countryside just covered with ogres. <laughs> that all just, <laughs> No, he was going to have all of his Aristo friends around. And they're all ogres as far as, you know, the, the workmen consider, because they just consume, they eat, they and destroy people they don't um, work yeah um, i think it, it's it's i mean if you think about the story that makes it very subversive and it's ironic that peril passed it on um yeah because you have the cat a servant murdering a master an, yeah. an ogre um that's a very dangerous idea to be putting out yeah which again kind of gives you the idea that peril just completely missed the point <laughs> it does um, okay, other themes we've talked about. Don't lose gratitude for what you have gained or forget who put you there. Yep. <laughs> they can bring you down as well. Yes. <laughs> um, and the other thing, as again, we've mentioned it, the complete lack of morals in most versions of the story and the versions of the story who attach a moral to it tend to be ones where clearly the original adapters or collectors have gone, This we can't, we can't put this out like this. This is terrible. Yeah. Um, certainly again and it's it's it, it's worth considering this actually as a story for, for the people rather than for the Aristo which is actually very interesting in terms of a fairy tale Yeah, in that definitely. it just does seem to be not a moral tale but a kind of a, a, in some ways a cautionary tale in some versions um, and otherwise just kind of a conversation or even just a social sort of you know laugh at certain people so yeah 
definitely. Okay, let's just have a brief mention of a few modern adaptations. Um, now, obviously, the one that probably springs to most people's mind is the DreamWorks production of Puss in Boots, the film from 2011, which was a spin-off from the Shrek films. Yeah. Um, I never actually watched it. Oh, you didn't see it? Okay. I can't tell you very much of the plot now because I haven't seen it for ages, but it's very difficult to not think of Puss in Boots, uh, to think of Puss in Boots and not think of that adorable ginger cat just yes. looking up with its just huge like, eyes just like a real yeah. cat would yeah exactly with the with the with the hat <laughs> that yeah. just changed everything it yeah. doesn't really tell the fairy tale at all it, that's not really no. the point of the story it's kind of like well puss in boots is a fairy tale character what could he also be involved in um instead yeah. of being a con artist although he is as well a con artist a talented thief he's also kind of a swashbuckling character with his yeah. little like basically, they used Antonio Banderas as the voice for it, and they used him in his sort of Zorro capacity, and they were yeah. taking the piss a little bit, and it was it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. It, it's kind of funny because they're like it's Zorro, but also there's a little bit of the Three Musketeers kind of thing there as well. Yeah. Um. I, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, you then have a tale of two castles uh, by uh, Gail Carson. Uh, uh, is it Levine or Levine? Levine. Levine. I believe so anyway. Yes. I don't suppose she'll mind. Um, <laughs> Gail Carson Levine obviously wrote Fairest and she wrote um, Ella Enchanted, which yeah. um, we've both very much enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, a Tale of Two Castles doesn't really have a cat involved, but you do have the clever servant motif. Yeah. And it's two sisters and between them, they kind of <laughs> they, they, they kind of take over a, a castle um, by impersonating a noble. Um, right. It's the... It's her story that I am most sort of least familiar with because I read it a very long time ago. But again, it's Gail Carson Levine and she's absolutely worth reading, I think, all of her fairy tale iterations are. So yeah, absolutely. I would give it a go. Yeah. I'm actually not very familiar with the Angela Carter version of Puss in Boots, but I've heard it's very funny. Yeah, so I am very familiar with the Angela Carter Puss in Boots. Um, it is kind of funny, yes. Um, it's definitely quite cheeky. Uh, and in terms of sort of the anthology, it's it's also kind of the, the the most jovial I think of all of the stories in the bloody chamber. Um, it's quite a, a difficult read um, in terms of the way that it's written with style, um, but it does kind of lean into humour. And one of the things it sort of talks about is also, as with Angela Carter, it's very much about the you know. The enjoyment of sex, the just actually having fun, and how everything doesn't need to be very, very serious. Yeah. Um, and one of the things is that there is a female cat in this, um, and essentially within the story, you have this young man. He's not a miller's son. He's actually he was a a soldier. He and the cat are basically it's kind of like a buddy buddy kind of thing. That they just they're just buddies. They're two bachelors who go out and have a lot a lot of fun. And then he happens to fall in love with this woman, and it's and the cat is like, "What? What's wrong with you? Oh, fine, okay, I'll go and help you woo this woman who's married to a miser, who basically a very old miser who keeps her locked away. Um, and all of, of course she wants is to go and be young and to live and stuff like that. And so the cat kind of gets manages to sneak him in, and the cat and she has a cat as well, and the two of them sort of have this sort of romance and they conspire and. 
um, you know, at first it's like, okay, well, look, I got you laid. There, you finished. He's like, no, I'm actually in love with this person. He's like, oh, all right, fine. Um, <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, and, you know, in the end, they do kind of have to murder. They have to murder the old man. Um, and apparently that's that's all fine and good because <laughs> just... Um, and get rid of the matron as well, who's the one who's controlling uh, the young the young bride. Um so there's lots of conspiring and stuff like that. And then the two, you know, they end up married and they get a stipend because obviously she's a very wealthy widow now. So they're all fine and they're all happy. Um, and that's the end of the tale. But once again, Angela Carter seems to have a very particular relationship with Peralt because it's a lot of her, a lot of Peralt's versions of the tales that she kind of draws from. Yeah. Um, and I think she's actually also translated several of Peralt's versions of the fairy tales as well um so you will see a lot of Perrault's influence there definitely uh, my final example is not for children um mm -hmm. I, I wish i could remember the author but i can't and i couldn't find her earlier so if i do then i will i'll mention it another time mm. it's called cat in boots and it is a slightly steamy fantasy um in the sense of there are a few sex scenes obviously not when she's a cat uh, but uh, it's a miller's daughter called uh, Catriona and she has she just basically wants to live her life and take love as if it suits her kind of thing and she does mm -hmm. and you obviously get the full sex scene it does not fade to black people um, <laughs> she offends somebody by doing this um, because she turns somebody down I believe and right. she gets turned into a cat uh, this does not please her greatly but she discovers a way to break the curse um, but her big vanity is the fact that she will absolutely, you know, she, if she's got to be a cat, she's got to be a cat. But she is going to damn well wear her nice boots because she's got kind yeah. of a shoe thing. Right. Um, so she's sort of tottering around in these boots and she finds somebody that she thinks she can kind of use as a bit of a stool pigeon. Mm -hmm. um, she'll put him in a good position and it will eventually get her to court where she can get the spell on her reversed. And then right. she can go back to her life of having fun and sleeping with people when she wants to. And hilarity ensues. It's a very fun, fun story. <laughs> I, I, I did actually enjoy it. Um, don't be put off by the fact that you go in and there's kind of like, like two pages in and there's this full on sex scene and you're like, hang on, I thought this was a Puss in Boots recently. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> Not in the way you thought. <laughs> Um, the final point I would make is the title Enough to Make a Cat Laugh, I Just Want to Explain. That is actually from a a, a French saying which comes from the Perrault version of the story. And the idea is that when a piece of trickery is so delicious, you describe it as it's enough to make a cat laugh. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so yeah, um, I think that we're kind of at the end there and obviously we've only been able to kind of scratch the surface uh with this and there are probably lots and lots of other versions and there are going to be lots and lots of stories which involve um you know animal helpers as well and also uh clever servants so hopefully uh we've whetted your appetites and uh if you do find out any more you can let us know just very quickly what do you say is probably your favorite version of the story um it's really tricky because until I sort of read some of the others, I would have sort of grudgingly said the Perrault version because I'm most familiar with it. But I'm, I, I kind of see the holes in the narrative where he hasn't really understood things. 
Yeah. But I am quite fond of the gazelle story now as well. Yeah, to be honest, the gazelle story does sound very funny. Um, I kind of, I, I do like the Joseph Jacobs one. Yeah. Uh, because you do get that, um, you, you still get the happy ending, but you do get the, ah, careful, yeah. careful moment. Um, but I know, and to be honest, it's entirely for the wrong reasons, but I hold a very personal place in my heart for the Peralt version, literally just because it is hilarious to me <laughs> how badly Peralt misunderstood everything. It's, I don't know, it's kind of like, I'm going to tell this story, but I can't figure out what's wrong, so I'll apply morals at the end and that'll paper over any cracks, and it's like, oh honey, yeah. it really doesn't. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> You dumbass. <laughs> Poor little folklorist. You just... Anyway. Uh, so yeah, it is hilarious in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, I am going to be recommending Jules' uh, latest upcoming book, um, this Wild Justice, uh, which is book nine. It is book nine, isn't it? It is book nine. It is book nine um, of the Harker and Blackthorn series. Um, this is, I think, this one has a different kind of tone to it um, for a number of different reasons. Obviously, people who've kind of read up to book eight will know that some things have shifted. Um, and book nine kind of feels like the sort of the answer to sort of a question which has been left at the end of book eight without wanting to give any spoilers at the same time um book nine for me was great because we really got to explore a little bit more of bex's backstory um some of her life and kind of her the sort of the the direction that she's going in so that was really fantastic um it's a really, really exciting book. Um, it's got a very dark kind of creeping undertone. And uh, obviously there's a great cat character in it. Um, <laughs> um, but also, uh, and I, I don't believe it's too spoilery to say, um, we get some sort of black dog kind of things going in there. Um, yeah, so anyone who loves some of the black dog mythology is going to enjoy this. It's Dartmoor, so you're going to get ghosts and black dogs, yes. I'm afraid, ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> very, very atmospheric um, kind of environment as well. So like um, Everyone yeah. who's read it so far has said how tense they were through the entire book. And there's it's... me thinking, okay, it's, it's easily 20,000 words longer than any of the other books in the series. Have I made it too long? Is the pace sacking as quite... No, no, I was really tense all the way through. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very tense read um, uh, with a, I feel, a very, very good payoff. So um, highly recommended. Do check it out. And as always, if you haven't had a chance to kind of start the uh the Hagra and Blackthorn series yet uh now's a good time um so do check it out because it, it is a a very 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 good read so check it out um this wild justice uh Harker and Blackthorn book and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the Speculative Fiction Podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. 
For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.